Hello and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 29. I have a couple of great guests with me today to talk about something I know very little about. So I always enjoy it when my guests get to school me a little bit. Uh, Our topic today, or one of our topics today, is what it's like to be a YouTuber making technology content. I do audio. I don't do video. So I'm glad to have a couple of really smart people here to school me, as I said before. The first of which, the first of whom is Renee Ritchie, well known to many people in the Apple community for his coverage of Apple, not only at iMore, where he spent a number of years, but now out on his own making YouTube videos and writing and podcasting. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's great to have you. And next up, James Rath. The bio on his website says James is a blind filmmaker. He YouTubes about, is that even a verb? I don't know, about uh, technology and accessibility and what it's like to be a blind dude. Hey, James, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I, as I said, uh, really want to talk to you guys about uh, video, but I also want to get to know you a little bit and let the audience get to know you a little bit because you have interesting stories and interesting uh, ways of getting to the place that you are in terms of your your work. And I gave this sort of brief biography, but I guess I'd, I'd love to hear from each of you how you wound up being a, a YouTuber, a filmmaker, how, how video became the medium that you chose to communicate most with. All right, so uh, I I got interested in video when I was much much younger. I ended up getting an Amiga computers back when Apple wasn't doing so well, and they had a video toaster, which was famous at the time for being used for Babylon Five, and it did all sorts of you know things that we take for granted now, but were unheard of on a home computer back then. And I used it for a while, but then I ended up working in web uh, development and marketing and and a bunch of other things, and just went away from it. And when I started at iMore, at first, uh, I was just blogging every day, and then I took over the podcast. And they had this thing going on at the time called the Round Robin, where back then it was all about platforms, and there was BlackBerry and Windows Mobile and Palm and iPhone, and Android was just coming out. And so every year for a week, we would all switch phones and sort of like a, a Round Robin, and then we'd all get together back when humans were allowed to get together still and talk about our experiences and we'd all review each other's phones and I got to do some of those videos and I, it was just fascinating but then again I went back to blogging and podcasting and from time to time I'd ha- I would be like if the editor wasn't there they thought I could edit video so they would throw it at me but uh, two or three years ago I got more and more interested in it I just started watching more YouTube videos and seeing just how far the medium had come and just how well it could be used for storytelling. And you could sort of get the visuals of the images and from a blog post and the narrative from a podcast and make a, a three-dimensional sort of story where you could re- really like have a three-act sort of introduction, like substance, wrap-up, just a really rich, rich storytelling medium. And I got more and more interested in it and started spending more and more time in it uh, in, to the point of neglecting everything else. And then it just, that was sort of all what I ended up doing. I'm fascinated by that round robin idea. That's such a good idea. I mean, we all get sort of stuck in the things that we know. I mean, I'm an Apple person like like you guys are, and to be thrown a Windows phone or an Android device or even an Android device you're not as familiar with sounds like kind of a great stunt, but also super 
informative. It was great. Like, and, and BlackBerry was the powerhouse back then. It wasn't even iPhone. <laughs> iPhone was still coming up distant in the background. It was all about Windows, Palm, and BlackBerry. So it, it was trying to use the, and the BlackBerry, I just remember the notification, because there was no notifications on the iPhone back then, just BBM popping up every three seconds. I'm saying, how do you get anything done? <laughs> <laughs> James, how about you? How'd you become a video maker and a filmmaker? Yeah, so uh, my story kind of started when I was young as well, where, you know, I, I was born legally blind, and that pretty much meaning that I have about 5% vision, and that is still kind of up in the air because it's it's non-correctable, and my eyes can easily get fatigued. So when I do reach that limit, especially working in a vi- visual medium, it's easy for me to have to switch to things like voiceover and other screen reader technologies that um, allow me to continue to do my workflow. Um, and that's I, where Apple really comes into play with my workflow is um, Apple makes sure they ship everything, including Final Cut Pro, with uh, voiceover support and, and making sure that I can adapt depending on how I need to finish this work, whether it's a full auditory experience or I can just use my Zoom, zoom in 500 times onto my 5K iMac and you know get it done that way. Uh, and it really did start from a young age where I discovered the camera at like eight years old and noticing that I could see detail that I never even knew existed in the world, um, was pretty, pretty cool. Uh, and, you know, knowing there was no cure or treatment for my particular, uh, ocular conditions, I just, I got more involved with video. I started making short films when I was younger and putting them in like, you know, art festivals and stuff and doing independent studies in high school, focusing on film, even though we didn't offer like a film class, uh, at my school. And I almost went to film school uh, after high school, but then I decided to kind of figure it out on my own because I'll be honest, education wasn't the most accessible experience for me. Um, I was treated very sighted despite not being very sighted at all. Uh, So I was never taught Braille. I was never taught um, how to really use a screen reader when I was younger. So I had to embrace all this as I was getting older. And as I got more involved with YouTube as an adult, Uh, I found a community of people who have disabilities and people who are advocating for accessibility, whether it's through YouTube and through Twitter and all this stuff. And I I got more involved. I learned more. I learned how to become more independent with my technology, but also uh, living skills as well. And, you know, it's been a few years now since I decided not to go to film school. And within that time, a lot of how I use YouTube is for opportunity. It's, It's to create other jobs for myself. Uh, I'm not looking to create the biggest audience or uh, the most mainstream content. I try to take accessibility in a very approachable way and digestible way. And I think it does a pretty good job at that. But not everyone's always listening out for accessibility uh, content. And that's understandable. Uh, It's just a matter of, for example, I told my story about how Apple's technology impacted my life in a little short film. And within four days, some Mac blogs started picking it up. And next thing I knew, I had Apple PR calling me asking like who I am and and what this is all about and um later that night Tim Cook ended up tweeting it and it was really the first like customer uh video like outside Apple like external video that Apple ever shared really and as far as to my knowledge and things have opened up a lot more since then which is really cool with their culture um but that ended up having me go speak at Apple for uh, Global Accessibility Awareness Day the following year in 2017. And I got to interview Tim Cook on my YouTube channel and learn about the, the culture and the history of accessibility all the way back from Steve Jobs uh, running the show. And it was really cool. It was a, a great opportunity and one that you know has really helped 
gather other uh, opportunities like working with Tommy Hilfiger, PlayStation, in, in other ways, whether it's public commercials or uh, internally uh, consulting with accessibility with them. There is so much there to unpack there, James. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll just ask you a couple of the questions. Sure. So I, I'm a low vision person as well, and I gravitated toward audio. And I don't know whether, I, I don't feel like it was a lack of confidence on my part. It was a feeling that I was best suited for audio. But did you ever think, hey, video is not a, medi- a medium that's necessarily well suited to my abilities, even though I have all these accessibility tools? Or did you always say, you know what, video is where I want to be and what I want to do, and I'm going to do whatever I can with it? You know, I think video is where I really, the idea of accessibility was the first really thought of for me with video. And that's before I really knew what the term or, or coin was for it. But it brought the world into focus for me. And, you know, there's going to be some limitations here and there with doing video as someone who is legally blind for sure. But I think it comes down to the storytelling and it comes down to what message you want to share. And if you can execute that, I mean, that's that's really my role, especially as a director. Uh, there's a reason I was brought in to direct that Tommy Hilfiger campaign that was nearly half a million dollars to um, shoot. And that was because they were making a line of adaptive clothing. And I was about that. But at the same time, the agency, you know, had a different approach or a different take on it and coming from having that background of being uh, living with a disability and wanting to see better representation because I didn't see myself very often in media and culture um, growing up. I really wanted to take a better and more normalized stance on how we represent accessibility and, and especially people with disabilities. And so we hired like eight people with disabilities to play in this commercial and, and casted like we found over a hundred within a, a week. And it was pretty amazing the turnout and we ended up winning three can lions awards for that um uh, commercial campaign and there was two versions of it there was one that had more of my style and and flair and then one that was a little bit more tongue-in-cheek in the nicest way possible that was created um more by script from the agency and the client chose to go with mine and it, it just proved to be a little bit more empowering so yeah that that's really why i decided you know, film, it just makes more sense for me and the way I want to storytell. It sounds like you have really had those some lightning strike moments, like when Apple became aware of what you were doing and when Tim Cook got involved. And how did you how did you handle that when, you know, you're, you're making this stuff to tell your story? And then all of a sudden you've got people like Apple, like Tim Cook, and then later on clients like Tommy Hilfiger coming to you and going, hey, let's do some work together. How did, how did you kind of process all that? Spikes are cool uh, in the in the <laughs> algorithm, like when you can see your analytics and stuff. Um, I'm very much I'm open to hearing how companies want to work together, but I'm also in it if their values align with mine. I'm not about you know coming in and working on a project just because they want to check mark diversity and inclusion with it, but the product really isn't accessible or doesn't do anything for my community. It's just a matter of like you know this guy he's a blind director. Let's let's just have them because it checks a box. I'm not about that. And I really try to vet for that when working with, and I've turned down quite a few, you know, things that seem like cool opportunities on paper and would probably write a nice check, but it just didn't make sense. So I'm very selective when, when I do choose to work with um, different brands. And so it was kind of wild, especially with the Apple one at first, because next thing I knew nine minutes after Tim's tweet, CNN and Good Morning America are calling me to do an interview literally like that night. It's it's like almost midnight uh, Pacific Coast time. And I'm like, 
I'm about to go to bed. What's happening? So the next thing I do, I was up until 5 a.m. talking with Good Morning America. Uh, and funny thing is that that interview never aired because um, they had some breaking Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> news um, to air. I'm sorry. It, it was election season. It, yeah, it, it happens. <laughs> so, oh, well. Um, but at the same time, it, it was um, it was a cool spike. Sure. Well, some of what you were saying, James, made me uh, segues nicely into the next question I wanted to ask both of you. Uh, Renee, you've just gone out on your own to, from iMore. You're doing a lot yeah. of things, but a big component of what you're doing is is video. So is, is making YouTube videos a business for you, an income stream for you, or is it a, more of a way to get the, the word out about what else you're doing? Or how does it fit into your work life? It's sort of two things. One is that, um, you know, YouTube is both the best and the worst and that like, you know, it's it's completely tied to Google. Uh, and that means that you're always sort of doing business under the feet of a drunken giant that could step on you at any moment, uh, you know, or, or clear a path for you. It's it's sort of completely chaos and you never know. But they have built this amazing engine. So, for example, if we were all at WWDC um, in a normal time and we all did podcasts about the keynote, I could listen to James's podcast, but it would never recommend yours for me. It would just recommend more. Like if I'm just in a normal podcast player, it would just show me more episodes of James's podcast. But if I was on YouTube and I watched James's video in the sidebar, could be your video, my video, uh, you know, The Verge's video, all of these things. So it creates a way uh, for people to see, discover, and learn about new creators and new voices that is really unmatched. Like Google Google search is the opposite of that. Google search traditionally rewarded time on page. So you had a generation of very corporate bloggers trying to hide links and rewrite everyone else's stuff so that people would, would find their page and stay on it. Where with YouTube, anybody can be in the sidebar. Anybody can be in the recommended or the next up. So it really has this community spirit. And you don't want to be all in on Google because you're always one adpocalypse or change of of uh, service status, one SLA away from losing all of that income. But if it's a component of what you do, especially if it's um, an, a way to amplify what you do, it can be a very virtuous cycle to have people discover you and then help channel them into your podcast, into your writing, into everything else you do. So for me, it really is like a, like a force multiplier at this point. And James, you're saying that making YouTube videos is more of a sort of a calling card for you and you're doing other kinds of film work. So what's your goal when you're putting new YouTube content out? YouTube is very much like a home to me. I, I love it. I have I mean, if, even if you go check my channel on the about section, my channel has been open since 2006 and I was nine years old when that was made. Uh, so I think it, it kind of is a show. I've always been into the latest, like I, I've always seen potential in what YouTube is and uh, I grew up at a time, especially being interested in film, where I could share something immediately and have people react to it, whether positive or negative. And that's the beauty of YouTube. Anyone can say anything um, to some degree with an, uh, being anonymous. Uh, but at the same time, the right folks can see it and that can open up doors. So I really treat YouTube as a way to uh, try and get my voice out there and my mission, which is spreading awareness about accessibility and the benefits universally and just helping people realize that this is something that's beneficial for everyone. And, and even down the road, if a disability were to intersect with your life in some way, whether it's you or a family member, at least you have some way of uh, being 
ready or prepared. Uh, it's almost impossible to always be prepared for stuff like that and life-changing events. But I think having just the bare minimum conscious knowledge on accessibility and where your resources are uh, is super important. And I hope to be that resource. And uh, I get those comments a lot where I am that resource for a lot of folks. And I, I like, those are the comments that keep me wanting to make more YouTube videos and um, always make me try to balance between anything private that I work on in terms of like consulting and, and working in more of the corporate sector. And then things that are uh, public and, and available as a free resource for everyone. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by The Uptake, a new show on all things tech and community for Microsoft. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, The Uptake covers topics from the world of tech, as well as how-tos on professional learning, development, and community building. Each episode features members of the tech community, and the conversations are pretty fun. In each episode, you're going to find a focused topic, interviews with guests, local and global community news, and updates on events, conferences, and more. And just to give you an idea what to expect, I want to tell you about some of the topics you might be interested in that were featured on previous episodes. They talked about personal and career growth along with imposter syndrome and a topic they called less code, more power. Sounds pretty good. We all want more power, don't we? So I listened to an episode of The Uptake about something called sketchnoting, and I've never heard of it, but basically the idea is that when you're taking notes at a conference presentation, instead of just writing down a whole bunch of words, you can use combinations of words and drawings, and then you can share those sketch notes out with other people who weren't there. And it's a way not only to record what your experience of the conference was, but to share that experience with others. And it's really sort of tailored to social media. And it was pretty interesting. And the people who talked about sketchnoting were not only pretty good at it, apparently, but they were very enthusiastic about it. And it was, it was kind of infectious. So check that out. Go and listen to it now. Just search for The Uptake wherever you find your podcast. That's U-P-T-A-K-E, or just click the link in the show notes. Go check it out. Our thanks to The Uptake and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. James, do you have a desire to do work that's not about accessibility or about your disability, or are you really all in on that topic? You know, growing up with film, I've always wanted to experiment with different stories. And, I mean, even having a passion for making episodic TV shows and films, um, I've always thought about that. Um, I, I've written stories that really don't relate or at least just have disability related to it in a way that isn't isn't the story it's just it's just present and again that's just a big passion of mine to give equal opportunity uh, when you actually look at the statistics of the representation in media for people with disabilities it's not accurate to what the actual representation in our real society looks like um so there there needs to be something that um needs to be fixed there and i've kind of found a little bit of a calling to help with that mission and there's a whole community of uh advocates who are doing that and doing amazing work with it and uh i'm i've just kind of found found my footing as I, that's some that's a movement i want to be a part of um and again if it if it comes to i get to write a tv show that uh doesn't necessarily focus on disability but i get to have a disabled character just present and and just show a little bit of a day-to-day that's awesome um, when it looks a little bit different. Is that where you think you'd, you'd like to go doing narrative film or TV work where you're, you're, you're writing a fictional story or you're directing something that somebody else wrote that uh, gives positive representations of folks with disabilities? 
Yeah, just to some degree, it's a little interesting because our current state of the world has kind of put a halt on uh, productions. And I was actually set to do some directing work for a CW show and um, uh, some work with Apple uh, in the following year. Actually, this month, I was supposed to be uh, away on set. And obviously, things are a little bit uh, on a standstill. So uh, as of right now... Uh, it's, it's a little hard to say. I'm just going to continue kind of working on what I can do in the meantime to help push my message and, and, uh, my mission of trying to, um, provide a way to tell stories that I think are important to tell. Well, speaking of the times we live in, Renee, you picked an interesting time to go independent. So what's up with that? How's, how's it going and how has the pandemic changed your life? (laughs) So I actually gave notice earlier than the pandemic because I wanted to give my employer like a a lot of runway because sometimes March can be a very busy month for Apple products. So I said, I'm going to leave at the end of March and I'm happy to help you with everything here. And then the world changed. Uh, And it was both good and bad. It was good in that so many more people were watching uh, and, and sort of thirsty. I don't know what the board equivalent of thirsty is for attention, for entertainment that there was a good opportunity to make content and find an audience. But at the same time, a lot of, you know, everything closed down. So even though I'm used to working from home, couldn't just run off to a coffee shop or the mall or something for a change of scenery. And sponsors got a little bit nervous. Uh, You know, a lot of companies had layoffs. So, you know, the, the, the whole way in which this kind of stuff is a business could have been very badly affected. And it ended up being just, a little bit affected, but for a while there, I was as terrified as I was excited. <laughs> but it's going well, and you're you're glad you made the jump. And are you doing what you would like to have been doing, but maybe with some modifications? Or yeah, I mean, when I, I left my old job in product marketing to work at iMore, it was a huge pay cut, but it was a much better quality of life. And I feel like this is the same thing. Like it'll probably take me years to build up just to where I was previously, but I'm, I'm enjoying sort of creating things for myself. There's just a completely different vibe about it. And I'm, I'm really happy that at least I get for good or for ill. Um, I, I have the opportunity to try that at least. That makes sense. I, I feel the same way. <laughs> uh, so for, for both of you, you do some videos. Renee does a lot of them. James does some of them about the technology itself, whether you're reviewing a new iPhone or providing tips and tricks. And I guess I wonder from your experience what you've learned about making that kind of video, like whether it be tips and tricks or absolutely don't do this because it's terrible. I mean, how do you, how do you make a good tech video? In, in, <laughs> in a few words. I know for, for me, it's, it's all about perspective. Um, there's a lot of voices on YouTube. There's so many, and there's so many amazing ones. I, and I know also as someone who consumes tech content, I'll watch the same video, but you know, everyone has their own, like kind of like how you have a tech podcast with sprinkles of accessibility. Everyone's got their, their sprinkles on themselves. Right. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, you, you've got a style. You've got a yeah, way of presenting yourself. Yeah, and, and some folks just have a really cool way, whether it's through the camera techniques or if it's just what they have to share. Um, for me, I try to come to the table with, you know, how does a blind person even navigate this iPhone during the setup process? Um, I get to show that a little bit, which is pretty cool. Maybe not everyone's interested in that, but I think it's just something cool to note and. And it's something to celebrate too that like 
there's technology out there that whether again it's just used by everybody and it's literally used by everybody and i love to show that so uh it's it's just something cool to highlight I have sort of like ideals that I've very seldom managed to live up to, but I, I always want to explain things in a way that hopefully can appeal to people who are more tech savvy, but also the vast majority of people who aren't. And I feel like they're often underserved as the tech industry got filled with more and more tech aficionados. Um, we sort of forgot the, the, the Walt Mossberg, Kara Swisher motto of tech for everybody and you know like joanna sternstall does a great job of that but it's not by no means is it the majority anymore and then i also try uh there was this great saying from john august who's a hollywood scriptwriter, but you know he always tries to only write the interesting scenes and it's human nature to want to like elaborate on everything and to preface everything and one of the earliest lessons i got in writing from my old boss dieter bone was to like, cut the first paragraph and if it makes no difference leave it cut and I'm having to relearn that with video. So I want to sort of make as long as it has to be no longer and as as intelligent as it can be, but always accessible. And the most important thing for me is to never be wrong on the Internet. And I know I will be always, but I always <laughs> want to strive Good to try. not be wrong. Because, you know, like that, the Internet is such a, a – uh, things spread so fast on the Internet and if you give people bad information, that spreads faster than you can contain it. So I work really, really hard to try to be accurate from the beginning. Yeah, it, it's funny how even I think a little bit different, but some people will come to your video already with an expectation or an opinion. And no matter what you say or script or even even if what you're sharing is accurate experiences, uh, people will try to debate that or, or at least even just... Yeah. Uh, cry out in the comments, or they won't watch the video and tell you you're wrong. That's the best one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you I can did tell one by where, looking at you that you're wrong. <laughs> I switched to Android um, for for a good bit, and I shared that experience as someone you know who is uh, someone who needs access- accessibility. And Android does offer some, and I literally did a compare and contrast between the two, and I actually highlighted some parts that access- accessibility was like really strong on. Uh, android but even at the end of the day when i like said apple's ecosystem the the continuity between it all and like what i do personally um for for my work and then things back to the mac uh it's just it was a better experience for me and i shared that and some of the comments i get it's just like they didn't even try to understand that not everyone is them (laughs) you know what's hilarious about that is that most people who complain about android accessibility mention braille first and you're not a braille guy right so no no i'm not yeah audience is an interesting thing that renee brought up and i was going to ask both of you james you're talking about accessibility to an audience that you're trying to teach about it so by necessity you're explaining concepts when you say voiceover you have to say that's a thing that reads aloud on the Mm -hmm. max max screen or the iphone screen and you're having to show people things do you ever want to do or do you do more advanced deep dives and take a look at the way accessibility works for somebody who uses it every day without sort of having to having to go back to the beginning and do accessibility 101 for people? Yeah, I, I thought about how to do this in the most appropriate medium. And I thought about even like a side podcast where I can talk a little bit more in depth about it. Um, but I love maybe even like a lot of when I get the oppor- 
opportunity to do that. It's it's with things like this where there are people who already champion the more technical side, and I get to kind of come in and geek out a lot more about like alt text and you know in the the ADA guidelines for like how websites are supposed to be accessible, uh, and you know it, I do. I do like being able to at least give like an intro to a lot of people and, and help hopefully pave them to like check out other creators who are doing amazing pieces of content that do go much deeper. Um, and so I, I think my approach, I like it and, and I think I'm going to stick with it for a bit. Um, I may explore other ways to extend that knowledge base um, and, and share even more. But uh, as for now with YouTube, at least, Video, I find, is just the most accessible way for people to kind of start to grasp the the introduction of understanding accessibility and the benefits. You you found a sweet spot that that you like. I I am by nature an imp- impatient person and a geeky person, and so when yeah. I talk about accessibility, I always want to talk to those folks that are in in the intermediate world, and I want to talk to people in the mainstream who think they understand accessibility and who say things like "awesome" and "amazing," but don't really know how it works. Sure, and that doesn't mean that our approaches being different are, you know, that either is, is wrong. But I always like to ask people those questions because it feels like you have to choose. You have to decide I'm either the evangelist to a mainstream audience that needs to know the basics, how it works, what does work, what doesn't work. Or you're somebody like me who's like, well, Brailleback 4.7, you know, something. Uh, and I, I'm just, I'm intrigued by, you know, that that choice that, that folks make, especially when you come from a geeky perspective, right? And you, you probably know a great deal more than you're sharing in your videos. Oh yeah. It's a matter, again, being a filmmaker, I like to tell other people's stories through documentaries and stuff, but I've got to make, I've also got to do justice by the people in, who are allowing me to tell their story and help it reach as much of an audience as possible. I mean, there's always a format for doing deeper dives on that and how like just for example like how someone who uses a wheelchair that is a power chair that connects to the phone and the phone charges through their wheelchair and they're able to use switch control to literally run an entire business uh as cool as like that is you know when you want to get into the specifics it can get much longer in format and there was a while where youtube didn't really uh, i guess necessarily uh you didn't benefit on YouTube for having longer content. That's sort of changed a little bit, and, and I think it's a genre-on-genre genre basis. But uh, it's I like to find that sweet spot of, like, how much can I unpack in about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit more. I mean, most recently, I've, I've done a 35-minute video about how blind people do gaming, and I've gone a little further in depth with that with guests from Microsoft, from uh, gamers who, you know, compete in tournaments who are totally blind. And it's it's such a cool kind of deep dive that I've, I've got to do but at the same time i try to make sure i can always intro people into it at the beginning sure uh, renee you you talked about the sort of basic appro- approach to basic tech as opposed to sort of we're all geeks here talking together yeah. to, to one another so how do you balance that because you're somebody who is part of a community of folks who are very much plugged into Apple and who are, you know, you're, you're going on Mac break and you're, you're talking about stuff at a fairly high level. But then when you make videos, you're trying to communicate to an audience that may not necessarily read Daring Fireball or watch Mac break. I think, you know, it's, it's a balance and it's sort of similar to how I try to talk about accessibility because 
you know, Apple's been really good. You know, that that whole team, the accessibility team at Apple is magnificent in what they do, but they have to do that on a daily basis. And they sort of, in my opinion, James probably knows way better than me, but in my opinion, they've done it by trying to show that accessibility and inclusivity are for everyone and that there will come a moment in everyone's life where they feel uninclusive or when they when something happens to them, whether it's a short-term industry injury or a procedure or just the, the cruel palsy of Eld catches up with them, that they start to need these features more and more. And I, I find that translates into almost everything. So if I can say this device has DCI-P3 color gamut and can tell you that that just means that reds and greens look deeper and richer, or if it's got spatial audio and I can tell you that that just means that it sounds like you're in a surround sound movie theater and you know the things are in front of you and behind you, there's almost always a, a tangible real-world example where you can tap into somebody's somebody's feelings and uh that that helps them relate to you and if you're not too long with the with the techie geeky stuff and not too long with the sort of explainer part i find both both ends of that spectrum just put up with the other part because they know their part is coming again next (laughs) are you guys video gearheads do you always want the latest lens camera light microphone that kind of thing I think I used to be a lot more like that, um, especially back when, you know, I was about to accept uh, going to film school and, and uh, I used to like work on a black magic back in high school, like the black magic 2.5 K and I would shoot in raw and, and something kind of happened where when I kind of really adapted accessibility, I, I really took that into a workflow standpoint too. Like what is the most accessible and easiest to execute way to tell a story without hindering the story uh and i've kind of geared back a little bit uh since then over the last couple years and i I went back to canon i've kind of gotten rid of my black magics um because it is such a heavy workflow to work in that kind of compression and and, uh codex where now i i have like three different tiers of cameras iphone and like point and shoots for like quick travel need to just really shoot something real fast. I have a mirrorless DSLR for the vlog or like if I just need something a little bit where I can flip the camera, I can zoom in with my magnifier and like make sure everything's in frame. Nice thing I've been kind of doing lately is using an iPad as like a remote manual control um, tool, which has been great. I love that uh, with all these cameras with the Wi-Fi feature. And then I do have a more journalistic um, camera that's for cinema. It's... It's usually a B camera to the Canon C3100 or um, 300, and it's uh, the Canon XC10, and it's a fixed lens, so it's it doesn't have like interchangeable lenses. It's got one like it's a 24 to 240 millimeter, so it's great for zooming in. It's great for uh, interviews, and and I use that thing when I'm like traveling and and going to like places to again do more of a documentary piece that's again it may be because i've done less narrative and uh, fictional works and, and scripted works and gone into more of a documentary filmmaking um direction with my recent stuff so i yeah in terms of the question less of a gearhead these days and i just try to find what is the most accessible and intuitive workflow for me to get this done i um i have moments of it um and it's dangerous so i try to stay away from it because 
especially with audio, you can spend limitless money. Like you, you can go broke as a millionaire <laughs> buying audio oh, stuff yeah. and video is really close behind. So I did splurge on a, on a cinema camera because I, I really only do a lot of talking head stuff. I don't do some of the really cinematic B-roll stuff that a lot of other YouTubers are really good at. People like Michael Fisher and you know people like Marquez Brownlee are just, they can capture such beautiful shots with music and all of that. And I can't do that at all. So I figured I'll have one really good camera that I can just talk into. And hopefully that'll look okay enough that people will forgive that everything else looks not very okay at all. <laughs> Renee, you talked about being wrong on the internet. I'm, I'm guessing that somebody has told you that, whether you thought you were wrong or not. So I, I'm wondering what role the comments viewers leave for your videos play, either in how you think about the video you just made or in the videos that you want to make in the future. So I, I was influenced a lot by my colleague, Georgia Dow, who's a therapist, and she got involved in tech journalism early on. And it was, it was, it was horrible for her because it was a real you know, men's club and people were not accepting at all, uh, you know, of her back then. And she was incredibly patient in humanizing herself and that the, the her ability to turn around an audience was unbelievable to me. And I, I heard people like Gary Vaynerchuk talk as well about how even his critics, he would embrace and try to connect with them because they would become some of his most vocal supporters. And I'm not as good at it as they are, um, but I try. So what I've done for myself is sort of set limits. So I'll go into the YouTube comments for the first hour after I publish a video. And if certain things, you know, like if something is racist or sexist or something like that, I'll just uh, ban the commenter. But if someone disagrees with me, if if they have a good argument, you know, I'd love the discussion. I already know what I know. I'm desperate to learn what other people know. If it's a little bit, you know, like the way that internet comments can be, I'll try to, I'll try to use the lessons that, that I've learned and humanize myself, ask them, you know, thank them for their feedback, ask them if they can elaborate on it so that it becomes less of a, I'm an, an anonymous internet hit person and I just want to vent my frustrations out into what to me is a, you know, uh, superficial world. And I sort of, I think I've found that balance now. And I do the same thing on Twitter. I try to respond as much as I can. If it's over the line, I just... I just hide that that person from my existence, um, and if it's if it's just a little bit on edge, I try to I try to convert them over to the light side of the force and hope that they join our rebel alliance. <laughs> James, a similar question for you, but I want to put a different spin on it because, as you know, sometimes people with disabilities are not treated very well. Names are called. People call you know people people say mean things. Do you get that? Does it affect you? And do you try to respond in any way or do you just move on? I think the the fact that I have had a disability since I was born, um, I, I got called anything and everything you could when you were a kid. And that's probably where you take it to heart the most. Um, and it, it's definitely going to it's going to hurt. But I think thanks to YouTube and, and putting myself out there, I've built like a level of thick skin where I, I I just can't take it personally when people, um, you know, have something that's a little bit more targeted, not so much like criticism about the content or whatever. It, it's more so when they want to attack you or, or um, specifically with the disability, I can't take it personally because I, I know there's something else going on with that other individual that is beyond me. And uh, that's something they got to work out a little bit. I do. I can get, you know, if someone wants to send something to me directly and have me respond to it. I can get a little witty. I can get a little sarcastic um, in my response. And I, I don't always 
you know, hold back. Um, I do it to the point where I'm not like, I'm not mean, but uh, I try to maybe set a little bit of a perspective in place when responding to those kinds of comments. Uh, so, no, it, it really doesn't impact me as much as it maybe would have if I had just recently gotten a disability or um, would just be putting myself out there for the first time, for sure. And, and I know a lot of people struggle with that, and it's 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 a hard thing to swallow sometimes. And, you know, I, I try to give the best advice that I can, but I, you know, my perspective has been a little bit different as I've kind of gone through this routine before. And I've seen the light at the end of the tunnel and you know, you're still going to hit a few bumps here and there, of course, but it's still shining. The world's still good. I'm, I'm happy. And, uh, yeah, I can't let a YouTube text comment from an ominous person, just probably who's 12 or acts 12, even though they're like 32. <laughs> um, I can't let that ruin my day. Sounds like a healthy attitude. Not, it's not always easy to do that though, right? You, you, you're, you're good until that one manages to get under your skin. At least that's been my experience that 99% of them run right off your back, but every once in a while, maybe, maybe something, you know? Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. No, it just, it just depends. I think on the day too, you know, but sometimes I just got to hold back from responding if I'm having one of those days where, you know, whether it's just luckily YouTube, just I can just hide people's comments from my channel. If if I feel like they're just being inappropriate, you uh, Twitter has a great mute button. YouTube has a hide from channel, so no one can see that person's comment. And they're just they're just stuck yelling in the void, and it's it's kind of great that I can do that. If oh, only yeah. real life had that sometimes, but it's, it's sa- sounds satisfying though. Yeah. Hide is a great hide mute block. I like those things. It's great. So when we were talking about your being on the show, James, you were telling me about your upcoming project for Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is coming up toward the end of the month. So I'd love to have you talk about that project a little bit and just first start out by telling folks what Global Accessibility Awareness Day, or GAAD if you're on Twitter, uh, is all about. So GAD, or yeah, Global Accessibility Awareness Day, I like to celebrate it monthly. I like to celebrate it as much as possible throughout the month and of course like day to day. But yeah, it's, it's a day where the conversation and dialogue around accessibility is very much more active than it normally is. And you get to see companies, especially more recently, participate and get involved. Um, and I hope more creators as well do the same. Again, whether or not they have a disability, if they can at least just listen and, and be involved with the conversation or hear how uh, adding closed captions can impact their videos um, for the audience, for foreign audiences, for SEO, stuff like that. Um, I love having that conversation, even though I don't directly benefit from, you know, closed captions. I just, I love talking about accessibility and I think there's just, there's just too many benefits to ignore it. And I hope people kind of see that, especially with this, this day coming up. And so that's, that's just a little bit about, it's, it's usually taking place digitally. There are some in public, um, events that happen, especially in a lot, a lot of like areas like LA and San Francisco and New York. A lot of those obviously are um, pretty much all of them should not be happening this year in person, but uh, you know, it's the conversation continues no matter what. So it's, we should say it's May 21st, 2020 this year, Mm -hmm. and you will definitely on Twitter see hashtag GAAD and a lot of companies do participate uh, in, in surprising and really interesting ways. And there've been some innovative projects over the years. So it's a hashtag that's worth watching, but talk about what you're doing. So I'll be launching a new website uh, as well as a little documentary that I got to film back in January. So I actually got to visit Turkey 
and I've never been to Turkey. The, the furthest I've ever gone is like France and Germany. And so I got to travel to a completely new place. Culture is completely different. And even Turkey itself, like in Istanbul is very mixed. It's there's, you know, they're right next to Europe and Asia and the Middle East. So it's, it's, there's a lot of different diversity and, and the younger crowd definitely, uh, treats the you know culture a little bit differently than than the older crowd, but it was a very neat experience because I got to meet up with thirty no, sorry about more so twenty blind kids who got to experience audio descriptions and just for those who don't know audio descriptions are a way that uh, blind folks can enjoy media and cinema and TV uh, video content uh, with a narration that d- audio describes the visual context of a film in between the dialogue. You can do a lot more research on that. I have videos about it too. Uh, and it's just a cool way to digest films because it, it helps me cognitively pay more attention to it and also just find details that I wouldn't otherwise be able to see. I'm going to link to an episode of Parallel where we talk to an audio describer about it. So perfect. That's, that should be, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and I, so I'm looking into always I can also get my content described for this um, new project. But I'll be releasing a documentary about how I, as a blind person, travel, um, especially to foreign places, but specifically also highlighting the accessibility efforts in Turkey. So that meaning uh, I got to meet an engineer at one of the largest tech companies, and she's blind, and headed this project where an app can audio describe for anyone who goes to the cinema, uh, the movies that are currently in um in the theaters so if you turn on your phone turn on the app the app will use the microphone to just sync to the track of um the movie and through headphones you can just listen to the audio descriptions in parallel to the uh no pun intended uh to the film and uh so it's really really cool experience to have you know i never at that age got to experience cinema like that i always it's just always been like an auditory i'll miss details or jokes based on visual context uh and these kids who are like between the ages of like seven to 13 or 14 really got to experience cinema so young. So, and there was a kid there who wanted to work in the movie industry someday. And so him and I, we got to, I got to shoot a little commercial with him, which was really cool. And so it's the whole documentary is kind of about this experience I had, but also trying to highlight the great efforts from um, our community in different parts of the world. And we're going to go beyond that with the website. It's, it's going to be telling stories in both blog posts, but then also in a podcast format about what people are doing in terms of accessibility efforts in their homelands and, and what does accessibility uh, look like in different cultures and societies and how do people with disabilities um, get perceived in different parts of the world. Is that live yet? This is not live at the moment of recording, but it will be live once this episode is uh, aired. Uh, so definitely blindabroad.com is where that Blind will Abroad. be. Sounds great. Yeah. And, and I think it's surprising to a lot of people, even in the United States, who understand about what's going on with disability or other uh, European countries. It's probably surprising that some that more countries out there are doing stuff with accessibility that we don't know about. Exactly. I, I mean, the U.S. has some efforts and we have some laws in place, and but there's still a lot we can learn and there's so much that you know others can learn from from whether it be us or other countries so it's a way i want to try to help connect the world a little bit closer with that global accessibility uh, conversation we talked about wwdc a little bit which should be coming up real soon but is coming up in in a virtual way and i'd love to know how each of you guys who follow apple about as closely as i do are thinking about wwdc and covering it especially since you would probably be shooting 
uh, video. I don't know about you, Renee, but certainly you, James, would probably be shooting video if we were all going to be in San Jose at the end of June. So, so Renee, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts about the forthcoming virtual WWDC? I mean, I think you know, a lot of the things can and have been delivered remotely for years already, from like the keynote to State of the Union to the Apple Design Awards to the bigger sessions to even the smaller sessions that don't make the stage and you can't see live at WWDC. The parts that are that I'm it'll be harder are the labs, you know, where people wait in line and talk to the engineers who write or maintain their code. Uh, the meetups, like I always love the accessibility meetup every year, the home kit meetup, uh, the health kit meetup. I try to go to as many of those as possible. And just seeing everybody that you know, the whole community basically takes over San Jose for the whole week. And you run into people that you never expect or plan to. And that's really hard in a digital environment. So in some ways, it'll be easier. Like it's it's functionally easier for me to make video at home uh, because I have all the tools and you're never at the sort of mercy of bad hotel Wi-Fi or people trying to convince you to come to the coffee shop or the beard bash or uh, the talk show live while you're desperate to get a video up or just, you know, trying to move between venues and and all of that kind of thing. So it'll be easier, but I don't think it'll be better is is my Mm. guess. Sure. How about you, James? It's going to be interesting. I think in a way it's going to be more inclusive than ever because more people are going to be on the same playing field in terms of how they'll be experiencing it. But at the same time, yeah, there's definitely a lack of opportunity to get hands-on with whatever we'll be learning about that week. Uh, I know for me, it's it's a great opportunity because I get to reconnect with a lot of folks within the accessibility and tech space. And that might not look the same way this time around, for sure. So I do hope there's ways that at least the community and those who are quote-unquote attending uh, this year, I I hope there's ways for us to connect. Um, I don't know if that's going to look like, whether that's on Apple's platform of some sort or whatever, however they're rolling this out, especially for press and, and guests. But I know the conversation, I hope, will just continue on social media and, and be more connected than ever in the terms of uh, the conversation with DubDub. Uh, but yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. And I'm going to definitely try to cover what I can um, and whatever is most relevant to um, my my content. Last year, I got to do a whole deep dive on like voice control. And I talked to director of accessibility, Sarah Herlinger, um, in, in a podcast format, but then incorporate that into a video. And, and then I got to meet like some of the scholarship winners who worked on accessibility apps, young guys who are creating really cool apps in the space and, and that benefit people with disabilities. And that's just, it's just something they're passionate about. And uh, one did have a disability and one did not. So it's, it's just, I love meeting all those folks who uh, are putting and contributing to um, that effort. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is going to play out and how we're going to learn about all these if we can. Yeah, same here. I think the social interaction and just that sort of networking stuff that happens, it's going to be the most challenging part for all of us, figuring it all out. But anyway, it remains to be seen. Uh, So the last thing that we do on Parallel is a little thing I like to call one more thing. And I wanted to ask each of you to tell the audience about somebody or multiple somebodies, if you can't narrow it down, a YouTuber who you really enjoy following, whose content you love. I'm going to spitball some names, but I mean, Renee's great. Subscribe to him. He's independent now. He's got great content that, that 
pushes out like nearly daily. Um, and then I know one that I've always kind of looked up to Casey Neistat. Um, I actually came across his content on HBO initially when I was like much younger and, uh, it was on at like very late at night. And I'm like, this looks very what I make at home. Right. This is when I was like kind of new to filmmaking and not necessarily new, but I've been only kind of doing it in my bedroom or in the basement or with the neighborhood friends. And, um, and then now like seeing that, you know, he's, what he's done on the platform is very uh, motivate motivating. Um, Justine, I Justine, uh, she has really embraced closed captioning her content as well. After a nice conversation we had over dinner uh, about the benefits of accessibility, and uh, she's just been a huge ally for that. And even recently had a conference about um, workshops for Final Cut and featured an entire accessibility uh, workshop on how to do it with best practices and and. Again, just allies I, I can't recommend enough. And then um, even just a few disabled creators, Ricky Pointer, fantastic deaf YouTuber who talks about sometimes technology and gaming, but just what life is like being deaf and advocating for um, a more accessible platform on YouTube. And then uh, lastly, Christopher Hills. He's a Final Cut user, um, filmmaker who edits with switch control and never touches the keyboard or mouse when he's editing. And it's, it's quite amazing the stuff that he's able to do. He has several policy from my understanding and, uh, the dude can edit and it's, it's incredible. He's on my list of people. I really want to talk to you for the, for the show. And he does, I think a lot of folks who think about accessibility first think of voiceover because it's, I think the easiest for folks to understand and the blindness community is kind of out there talking about it, but what Christopher Hills is doing and what folks do using switch control and voice control is a lot less well-known than it ought to be. So, Renee, how about you? Who are some great YouTubers? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to assume that people know a lot of the tech YouTubers, like, you know, James, of course, is fantastic, and I watch all his stuff. And, and there's people like Justine, and I just love her optimism because I think far too often um, a lot of tech people mistake cynicism for intelligence and negativity for honesty. And I think you know there there are some people who show that you can be you you can make the world a happier place and also legitimately cover stuff. And I think that's great. But I've been venturing out now, like thanks to being at home for so long and and watching stuff. There's a show called Pickup Limes, which is a Canadian vegan um, a nutritionist living in the Netherlands who just does these amazing videos on different kinds of cooking. And I've been watching a bunch of different videos on coffee. And my my secret my secret like binge right now is all the great photography and cinematography channels like Crimson Engine, which taught me how to light scenes, uh, you know, three point lighting for scenes and and, and color grade. And there's a a bunch of really good uh, Mando Bites and Gerald Undone that just do really, really good deep technical dives on how to make your audio and your video better for the kind of stuff that we do. And I've so, some of them are are more charismatic and and sort of high level. Others are really, really technical and dense and deep dives. But I, I've been enjoying all of them. Well, I want to thank both you guys for joining me. This has been awesome, and I have learned a lot about people I should follow and video in general. I've sort of been dipping my toes into experiencing YouTube as a consumer much more since I've been home lately and gone down all sorts of rabbit holes, which is one of the great benefits of that platform. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, let's find out where each of you can be found online if folks want to watch what you're doing, talk to you, listen to you. James, uh, where, where can people find you online? Uh, just at James Rath. That's R-A-T-H. Uh, drop the W. I'm not that angry. 
and uh, <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much on Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, and even TikTok. Though I haven't uploaded anything there, I just want to make sure that was reserved just in case. So, and then blindabroad.com is where I'll be uh, sharing some new kinds of content. And of course, your channel on YouTube is that also just James Rath at James Rath, yeah, or uh, sorry, slash backslash James Rath, or yeah, forward slash. And Renee, where are you at? You you are also very eponymous in your uh, presences online, I believe. Yeah, I started off on CompuServe and I had like one of those long da- digit comma digit names. And after that, I swore that I was always going to use my own name because that way I would have to be responsible for what I said. And I just stuck with it. So it's Renee Ritchie on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everywhere. Excellent. Thank you guys both for joining me and we'll see you next time.